everybody, welcome to episode 105 of Literary Disco, Brat Pack America. Today's episode is all Reagan and Pepsi and Wax On, Wax Off, as we take a nostalgic tour of the teen films of the 1980s with Kevin Smokler's book, Brat Pack America. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, joining me in person. Live. Live. <laughs> I think this might actually be the first time we've recorded yes. in person without it being yeah, a stage show. It is. Yeah, totally. It's, it is. Very strange. That's really weird. Uh, so I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. What's hey! going on? <laughs> we're all West Coast. Yeah. So we're all currently sitting in, um, I think this is the south wing of the Strong Estate uh, in yes. beautiful Los Angeles. Um, the servants have just dropped off some delicious sourdough bread. Mm. There are no servants, but the bread is real and it was good. So I owe the listeners an apology. <laughs> oh, the listeners, not me. Not no. right. No. <laughs> I owe the listeners of America an apology. I don't remember when it was. It was a couple episodes back. Mm-hmm. And Ryder was going on and on and on and on about his new artisanal bread making. Is that really how it happened? I don't It, it was something like... in my, through Todd's memory. You brought it up. I was boring everybody with bread making. That's... Ryder was like, I, you know, after Trump won, I just, I was like, we're going to have to take it out to the woods. And I started making bread. Um, but... Julie and I were just sitting at uh, Ryder's table in his kitchen with his lovely wife, Alex, and I noticed some tinfoil covering something on the counter. <laughs> You're really drawing this out. This, this, we got, ate bread. You got, you got <laughs> I make, sliced you some of my bread that I baked rat. last night. I put it in a toaster. You Get put butter on it. You the, the key is he didn't offer it to us initially. I had to ask our host... Mm. What's that under the tinfoil? Mm-hmm. And then Ryder pulled the tinfoil back and revealed to us a loaf of sourdough bread of mm-hmm. a golden brown variety. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's about it's the length of your sourdough. Yeah, about the length of your arm. It's, yeah. It was bread, everybody. It looked like a loaf of bread. And Ryder then <laughs> cut us each a piece using an ivory-handled knife. This episode's going to be four hours. He long. popped it into his toaster. And within three minutes, Julia and myself both had a delicious piece of super sour sourdough bread yeah. covered in soft, buttery oh my butter. God. It was really good. It was fucking Thanks, delicious. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Great job. Yeah, how long did it take you to prepare? Well, that's a difficult question. Baking, but this is the thing about baking bread is like it's it's you have to you have to plan basically like 24 hours in advance Mm -hmm. you have to like you know oh set this out for a while and let it sit for eight hours and then knead this and fold that and let that sit for so it's been a you know i have a starter like you know a little Mm -hmm. bread starter that i have to feed every two days (laughs) i let the starter die and then i do exactly most people don't but that's that's why i I didn't know what any of this meant either i always i never understood why there was like good sourdough and then why most of the bread that we eat is shitty bread right like now i understand because it takes a lot of Time and patience and, and it's plan. an ancient art. Yes, it was delicious though. It was Thanks. super good. Uh, so Julia is here on the West Coast. Yeah, um, to visit friends and record with us. Yeah, you where, guys are also friends that I'm visiting. Right. To where, be clear, where have you been thus far? Oh, I've been to <clears throat> Seattle. What'd you see in Seattle? Um, I saw. I mean, it was so lovely. I've been there so many times. Seattle's awesome. Um, I went down to Pike Place Market by myself. I went. Uh, my friend and I on our big tour. Did today. you get a pierogi? It was a really good pierogi place in Pike Place Market. Um, no, I didn't. I had crepes and they were very good. Those are good. And uh, yeah, I did the regular Seattle stuff, but then you know, mostly I was hanging out with friends, like taking long walks in the park. And then a friend of mine worked on rebranding Smith Tower, which is this historic tower, and she um, was a big part of rebranding this uh, rooftop bar and observatory that is now like Prohibition era drinks. Oh, cool! Oh, so that it's is really cool. cool. Yeah. But you know, Seattle, it was nice for one day and then it rained for four. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, it's, it was great. And then I drove through uh, Washington and Oregon. And then I stopped in Redding, California and went into the mountains to see my friend in her Buddhist retreat. Did you see the Buddha? No. No, he was not there. Did you see the Lama? It's not a silent retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Is it one of those retreats where you get to talk? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I okay. mean,. It's a place where people live and pray and do that. 
And then they go on like mini retreats in the woods, which is very beautiful. Northern California, that's where. What What was the uh, What was the group sex situation? I didn't have any. I wasn't invited to have any. So uh, it still could have been that. You no, know, yeah. I just want to like be clear. Like I only saw it from my own personal lens. Right. Uh, and then I drove here. And Ryder and I just did the uh, LA Times Festival of Books, which was pretty cool. Yeah. We had a good time. Yeah, I mean, I only participated in one panel. How many panels did you end up uh, I was on, on two panels, and then I did um, a bunch of book signings and stuff right. uh, while I was there also. But Ryder actually got uh, pulled in as a pinch hitter. Um, the writer Jason Diamond, who wrote a book called Searching for John Hughes, got in a car accident before the panel in New York. Mm. And uh, the nice folks at the LA Times were like, can you get us, Ryder Strong? I'm sure that's how it went. It was like, hey, Todd, could your friend Ryder do it? And I was like, yeah, He's probably. busy making bread, but... <laughs> he has a starter he has to feed. So Ryder came in and pinched it on this very cool panel we did, actually, with the author of Brad Pack America, Kevin Smokler. Yeah. Cool. Um, about uh, 80s pop culture and um, nostalgia and movies and... A lot of the things we're probably wow, going to talk so about. Wow, so you guys just starting did this episode. Minutes. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I hadn't read the book yet, to be honest. Oh, cool. I, I started reading it on Sunday, so I'm... This is all still kind of fresh to me. But meeting Kevin was, was great. He's yeah, he was very, cool. He's a very, very cool guy and, and like, uh, funny as hell, um, mm-hmm. but also able to speak very eloquently as he is able to write very eloquently about pop culture yeah. in the 80s. And the other person who was on the panel was a French writer named Simone Roy. Mm-hmm. In my mind, his name was Simon Roy. Mm-hmm. And so it was difficult for me during the course of the day to not just call him Simon Roy. So every time I said his name... You I, called him Simon a couple times during know, the... And he Simone, Simon. Me. No, he didn't really care. Because no, you actually asked him and yeah. he was like... Eh, it is what it is. It is what it is. Zut alors, toujours, toujours. If you're listening, Simone, we're sorry about that. I don't know why you use this podcast to reveal the dumb things you think. Oh my God. That's the whole point of this podcast, is to get a glimpse into our heads. Guys. All the dumb things we think. Can I tell you about the greatest moment of my weekend? Sure. Yes. Okay. I had two great moments. But the first was I met Congressman John Lewis. Oh, you, oh yeah, I saw. So, here's how it happened. What was he doing there? Was he, does he have a book? He has yeah. The, the graphic, graphic novel. novel. March. Yeah. Um, so, he was up for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for his graphic novel, March, um, which he lost to... Um, Another person who was British. So it's a civil rights mm-hmm. graphic yes. novel. Oh my god, I gotta yeah. check this. Yeah, out. it's his, it's his autobiography. Essentially, it's a graphic novel. That's amazing. And he won the National Book Award for it. Wow. So, um, but he I'm lost the National Book Award. Book yeah, he, he seems to be doing fine. Um, so, like, he was there in the auditorium where all the authors were seated. So all the authors um, sit on the bottom floor, and then the you know the unwashed masses sit upstairs to watch. Um, and so as we were walking out, I was like, I gotta see where John Lewis is. I gotta meet him. I gotta meet him. And so I'm like, where is he? Where is he? And I turn and look, and he's standing right next to me. And John Lewis is like, he's like five foot two. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a wee little man. He looks yeah. he's like the size of one of those little aliens in Galaxy Quest. He's just uh-huh. he's tiny. And <laughs> that's right. I just that's, compared. So that's right, the somebody, reference yeah, we're going that's, with. That's yeah. Sorry, I was going to see when I say when I've seen him in photos standing next to Martin Luther King Jr. But let's go with your reference. He's just tiny. What aliens are you talking about? The minor. The minors. minors. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not the minors. Minors. <laughs> so we're walking out. I was like, oh my god! And my friend Elizabeth Crane, who we had on the show a couple years ago, she really wanted to meet him too, and she was like, oh my god, I don't know if I can do it. Mm-hmm. And so John Lewis is right next to me, and and Betsy Crane is is right in front of me, and so I smack. Betsy on the back, and I'm hitting her on the back to show her that John Lewis is right there. (laughs) Congressman John Lewis, the man who believes in everything that we believe in, is right next to her. And so I'm smacking her, and she's like, Todd, what? And she turns the wrong direction. And I'm like, over there. And I'm pointing, and she's like, what, what, what? And then she sees John Lewis, and she freezes up. And what she does is she throws herself against the wall and lets him pass. I couldn't let that happen. No, of course not. So what I did was he was trying to leave. And so I screamed, Congressman Lewis. Yes. Mr. Congressman. And then he turned around and I said, I just want to shake your hand. And he said, oh, okay. And so I shook his hand 
And I said, I just want to thank you for everything you have done for America and everything you do every day. And I want you to know that I'm behind you and everything. And then I just started babbling and getting teary-eyed. <laughs> and he just kept saying, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. Oh my you know, God. you go out and what you do is important. And he was talking and I was getting teary-eyed and it was just going on and on and on. I'm not letting go of his hand. Oh, great. Oh, you're that guy. Yeah. And then I was like, well, I need to get a picture. And so I just turned around and there's just this guy standing there. I was like, take my picture. And this guy was like, all right. <laughs> And so, like, normally, like, you take a picture, you take, like, three, four, five, six pictures. Yeah, like, you no, just, he's just he, like, bang. He just was like, pop, here you go. Well, it was a nice picture I saw. It was a good picture, yeah. Yeah. But I met Congressman John Lewis. That's he's fantastic. Right. It was history. Yeah. History. But then, <laughs> I wasn't there for this. He came into the author green room at the book festival, uh-huh. and which writer can attest is, is, like, Barnes & Noble come to life. Um, but he came in at the close of business on Saturday. Wait, is Barnes & Noble fake? Like, what? <laughs> it's like every author in the world comes to life. Oh, I there. see, I see. But okay. so he came in at the end of the day on Saturday, and I guess there was about 30 people left in there, including my friend uh, David Ewan. And John Lewis walked into the green room, and everyone stood up and gave him a standing ovation, wow. a round of applause. And John Lewis looked every single person in the eye and said, you must continue to do what you do. What you do is important. Go out there and change the world. Wow. And everyone <sighs> cried. That's beautiful. That's yeah. great. Oh. And you missed it. And I missed that because I was at the churro cart. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, <laughs> that's, that's classic. Wow. I, I like that's churros. the full Todd Goldberg experience. Yeah. I also shamed myself in front of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but we didn't need to go into that. Oh. <laughs> Seems sincerely <laughs> sad about that. It was just, so, just didn't go well. If the John Lewis story is a meeting going well, yeah, 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 yeah we can all right. just imagine what the the cream thing ended up. That five seconds later, as I was squealing in the bathroom, Kareem came into the bathroom. <laughs> that is, you know, so that you were is... fangirling out about him, and he walked uh, on you. So that's pretty great. The the fantastic author Chris Farnsworth and I met Kareem at the same moment. Then we ran to the bathroom and we're screaming and peeing and and then Kareem came into the bathroom. Well, I would say that's something out of a teen movie, to be honest with you. There we go. And your your drive through California is the stuff of the teen movie. Right. That's what I was originally going to say. I was like, when we're talking about location. Yeah. Um. So let's turn to this book, Rat Pack America: A Love Letter to Eighties Teen Movies by Kevin Smokler. Um. It's basically. I mean, it's kind of a series of separate essays in, in a right. lot of sure. ways, um, and they're they're he he groups together books mostly based on location, which mm-hmm. is right. fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I would say like that's the 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 real collective theme of all of the of, of the the study, I guess you would call this book, um, uh, is location and setting and how important location is to the '80s teen movie, and then also where they actually filmed these movies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think? Um, well, I, I loved the book. Um, and I loved it even before I loved meeting Kevin. Um, so there's that bias. Uh, but, you know, I, I have I have been in a book like this. I wrote an essay for um, a mm-hmm. book about John Hughes called Don't You Forget About Me? Mm-hmm. Um, where writers talked about the effect of uh, John Hughes' movies on them. Um, but this is not like what I thought it was going to be. I mean, this mm-hmm. is closer to... Pictures from a Revolution mm-hmm. than it is uh, than even than it is Tara Eisen's book Real to Real that we um, reviewed a long time yeah. ago. Um, it's the, not nearly as personal. No, no. not. It's mm-hmm. not. It's more of a film studies book. Yeah, yeah it is anyway. academic for yeah. sure. But I think what he does with place is really fascinating. Like I didn't know anything about um, the fake city that exists in all the John Hughes movies. I was fascinated by his examination of the different parts of Los Angeles and teen movies, mm-hmm. and then all the stuff that happens in the Pacific Northwest. I think what Kevin does really well is contextualizes what the, the teen movie was at that time and why it's mm-hmm. important. And we should note that what he defines as the 80s teen movie era begins actually in 1979 with Breaking Away and ends with Heathers, which was 1988, mm-hmm. 89? It must be 89. Um... So I'm, I, I was really into it. I mean, this is sort of my sweet spot. Like, 
if reading this book would be equal to like reading an Elmer Leonard book for me, it's like, oh, that's great. Give me some more. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, this is actually worth pointing out. Like, we we are all kind of we are all at very different ages when yeah. we explore mm-hmm. these movies. And I'm curious because I actually was surprised how few of these films I had seen. Huh. I've only seen the main ones, and oh, then yeah. like movies, even like classics like Heather's, I've only seen once. And oh, you know, it's been God. 20 years since I've seen Heather's. So, Todd, you were act- you're like the prime 80s age. Yeah, you I saw were, all these movies. You saw them in the theaters, yeah. is the point, right? Like, yeah. you actually remember going to see them. See, I was I was born in 79, so for me, I saw these films mostly on VHS or way after the fact. I yeah. missed every single John Hughes film until I was in my teens, yeah. which would have put me watching them in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. which partly, I think, is why I don't like John Hughes films. Mm-hmm. Like, I... Don't give a shit about them, and but I have to say, even if you don't like '80s teen movies, this mm-hmm. film—I mean, this book—is really a good read. Like, yeah. it's actually—he's very—he—he he loves these films, obviously, right. but he's also, um, you know, he—he—he's not blinded by them. No, you know, like no, no, no. he has a very good critical eye on what's wrong with a lot of these films. But anyway, Julia, have you seen? Have you seen any of these? So films? I have seen. I mean, I would say for the listeners, like a, a lot of these movies, I would assume like everyone has seen. So there's a lot of early. There's a whole chapter or two on the lead up. So there's a lot about Jaws and Grease, um, and then of course like Back to the Future, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club. Like yeah. So there's even if you were to get this book and like just kind of peruse those chapters. Like these are these are classics um, for the most part. Uh, well, not for the most part, maybe about like a third of them. Um, but I think it's very telling. Oh, Dirty Dancing too. Yeah. Um, Karate Kid. Yeah. But then also there's this whole section, 80s teen movies set in the 50s. Yes. Yeah, so that, I want to go back to that. That was my favorite section. Me too. Um, Me too. But I will say like, of, of all these movies, and there's several that I really like, um, in particular Dirty Dancing and Back to the Future, very telling for my age. By far, my favorite of all these movies is Heather's. So, like, the the coda on this era, like, the little, like, transition moment that led to, like, Scream and Clueless mm-hmm. and Mean Girls, like, that is... Because it's kind of the deconstruction yes, of the 80s exactly. TV. And it's like they're... I mean, we're skipping right to the end, but it's saying, essentially, like, what 80s movies missed is this, like, darkness. This right. hilarious darkness. So... For me, like, I did, I really like this book. It was so much better written than I would say it even had to be. Like, he yeah. really obviously cares so much about these movies, mm-hmm. and particularly the locations. Yeah. Um, it's like, that is the thesis, is that these movies, like, create an idea of an America that, you know, we all nostalgize or kind of live in or whatever. There's a lot to say about that. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of, like, do I feel like these movies changed my life changed my world maybe they made my world but i don't think they changed my world you, you know what is interesting is i didn't know until i got into this book that the guy who made heathers his his brother made mean girls hmm. which mm-hmm. i've watched probably they're the same eight hundred thousand yeah. heathers or mean girls both <laughs> but mean girls more recently because wendy my wife watches mean like if mean yeah. girls is on it's on like we're watching it yeah um, but Mean Girls, like you can see, like the, the the direct line from Heather's to it, oh, yeah. without knowing that um, that they're related. Oh yeah, whenever I encounter teenagers who are like, I love Mean and like Mean Girls is like old and retro now mm-hmm. to them, and I'm like, When did Mean Girls come out? Two thousand. Two thousand. I would say old. like two thousand two or two thousand three. Yeah, because okay. Lindsay Lohan was still upright. Yeah. It was so interesting for me to like, I, I would love, I actually think Kevin should write a sequel book to about the 90s yeah. teen movies. Because mm-hmm. there's a whole era of 90s teen movies that are very bizarre in their own right. right. And like they have their own sort of set of rules and location ideas. And I would love to read that too. Cause, yeah. Um, well, and because they also, know them better maybe. they branch off pretty clearly from the 80s movies. Like a, a 90s movie like Can't Hardly Wait, mm-hmm. which takes its title from an 80s song, Can't Hardly Wait by the Replacements. Um, and embodies like all the ideals of all these teen movies that we love, plus Heather's, plus all these other things, right. you know. And it's it satirizes them, but still ends up with a sweet ending using yeah. all '80s music. Like the entire movie consists of '80s music and yeah. a '90s uh, teen movie, which is yeah. Really I mean, strange. it has the positivity of an '80s movie with the slight emo ness. Of yeah, <laughs> but, but the positivity or... isn't really there. I mean, 
I think that's one of the things that Kevin talks about a lot in the book is that there's a lot of social stuff going on uh-huh. in these teen movies that when I watched them originally, I, I, I didn't really pay attention to. But like a movie well, like... Well, hold on. Let's talk about okay. that for yeah. a second. Because I feel... Because like, that's my problem with the John Hughes thing. Mm-hmm. And I think he really nails that down is that John Hughes is such a weird... Um, insular world you know and it's a it's a privileged suburban white right male world mm-hmm. and well i guess pretty pink is, is female oriented in, in its protagonist but like those and the fact that those movies spoke to so many people is bizarre to me because they mm-hmm. never spoke to me mm-hmm. and i think i'm not sure why exactly because i i think i lived a pretty you know privileged white kid mm-hmm. uh childhood but i definitely watching those movies was an alienating experience for mm. me by the time i saw them which was like i said probably when i was older than than your average audience i was probably like 15 mm-hmm. and i just never liked them but i remember hearing about ferris bueller's never liked it and i still don't really like them. i haven't seen them recently but like how do you feel about them julia do you yeah, I have complicated, very complicated feelings. I mean, like, Ferris Bueller is about, like, the most privileged, douchey... <laughs> it is. He's such a rascal. Like, I don't know how anybody could think that and, he's... And the, the book actually does a great job identifying this. Like, mm-hmm. the person that I always loved in that movie is Cameron. It's right. this mm-hmm. tortured sidekick. Right. Um, Who but, also is tortured by having so much money. Like, yeah, that's right. the problem. Sure, sure. His big yeah. problem no. is that his dad right. has too much I mean, money and won't let him drive the Ferrari. This is, <laughs> this is, this is not Kevin Smokler's fault, but I right. think this is, like... America's fault right now is like we're way too nostalgic for this created idea it really upsets me like to a deep degree I mean there's no there's just no excuse for making like this much content about one kind of experience and I guess there was then but the fact that we're like now in this period where we're like recycling it um, is that's what's make I'm gonna go on a tangent that I know is gonna upset go. both of you and the listeners. Is I did not like for this reason Stranger Things. Mm. Um, because we actually we talked about this a bunch uh, on our little panel that we did <laughs> about the nostalgia for nostalgia, yeah. And I was like, I have already seen this fucking thing 500 times. It's a great <laughs> story, it's really well made, but like, why is the black kid not the main character? Why mm-hmm. is why does Barb disappear? And that's so so funny, ha yep. ha ha. Like, it's so un- grating and annoying if you're not one of these people who is nostalgic for this, like, very specific thing. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's... No, I mean, it's my, my relationship to Stranger Things is very complicated. Yeah. Because I enjoyed every single second mm-hmm. of it. Sure. Because that, I it's grew up... Jam. Oh, it's your yeah. Oh, it's Goonies. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all those horror films from the 80s that I love. Yeah. Uh, but... I also hated it. Like I, 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 I was so frustrated creatively by it because to me, it's like on one hand, like I would love to tell this kind of story, but the fact that the style of the show also, like, okay, it's one thing to rip all your content from those movies, right? right. And and but then also when the the way the show is shot, the way it's acted, the way the soundtrack, everything is mm-hmm. rip off from like is yeah. borrowed from the. It was so frustrating to me because it's like, well, can but you that's imagine? Homage, well, but but it's bullshit because well, it's also completely <laughs> uncreative. Because the point is like, if because Spielberg and Lucas, the people who basically defined this mm-hmm. look and feel that they're mm-hmm. imitating, or you know, the filmmaker like Spielberg and Lucas of the '80s, you know, the filmmakers who were making the films in the '80s, they were riffing on the things that they had seen when they were kids in the 50s and 60s like the the saturday matinees right, and the cereals and all that but can you imagine if they actually shot all their movies like those cereals <laughs> sure. and like only made and set them in the 50s yeah. and like no the point was they took those ideas and then made new stories like et mm-hmm. you know set in the 80s in like towns that kids would recognize at that time and like why are we now making nostalgia its own sort of genre? Yes, like yes. that is so annoying to me. I and totally it's like, agree. like tell an original story or, you know, don't tell an original story, but don't, I, it, it, it just, I can't believe that we all got suckered by I, it. Well, so, I, but, but I also enjoyed it. But so here's, what can I here's say? the thing though. And, and this is something that Kevin talks about in the book about these 80s movies that take place in the 50s. It's not the true 1950s where... They're the 80s 50s. It's the 80s 50s where (laughs) That's the most... I think that's the best chapter in this book. I agree. So it's it's an idealized idea of the 50s, not where black people couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. Right, exactly. You know, it it is... So this this idea that we're recreating nostalgia... My my problem with Stranger Things is the same as you guys. At Mm -hmm. at some point I was just like, well, why don't I just go watch Goonies? You know? Mm But that didn't stop me from enjoying it because I was looking at the scenes and being like, oh, I had that board game. or Oh, I had this. So part of it, 
I think the nostalgia of watching something new that has those things in it is that it shorthands your emotion. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have to do as much work with those boys to make them believable characters because we are bringing into it all of our experiences from watching E.T. or all of our right. experiences from you know staying up late at night and watching Night Flight. So they, they have built no subtext into it. Right. We're it's providing right. subtext. It's baby boomers right. going to see an right. Eagles cover band. Exactly. <laughs> And saying, that cover band is so good. But it's like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, And of course, the Eagles suck to begin with. So, oh, wow. Wow. so to get back to the movies, wow. this is going to get violent. We're in person Whoa. I've got um, a peaceful, okay. easy feeling. Exactly. Look, Glenn Fry died for you. Okay. So I think that the best, and this is, let's talk about the 50s, 80s okay. movies. Um, yeah, because that's so great. I mean, I absolutely love Back to the Future it's, you know, Second to Heather is my favorite movie in this book. But there is no way to watch Back to the Future now at this moment in, like, American history and not be like, make America great again. Like, that yeah. is the... Right. That is there. That and is he there. links that to Reagan's right. Morning in America. Exactly the right. The fact that Reagan actually referenced Back, Back to the, the Future to yeah. the Union is mind-boggling. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. But the movies that I was really happy were included and one always gets the short shrift as being like so fun is Dirty Dancing is actually very revolutionary. There's an abortion in it. It's about rebellion. It's a really great movie. And Hairspray, I was so happy was included. Yeah, I was surprised by that. And the yeah. great, there's a great interview with John Waters in here as well. Yeah. So, I mean, like, these I don't know. What did you guys think about these 80s, 50s movies? Like, well, I happen to love all those 80s, 50s movies. Like, sure. I, Peggy Sue Got Married, which is not a teen movie. Like, that was a movie huh. my mom and I went to together when I was living in Palm Springs. I remember it vividly. Because Kathleen Turner's 50 years old and she goes back to her high school reunion and is transported back in time. Um, but I love Peggy Sue Got Married. It's one of my favorite, like, oh, I'm sick at home What's on demand? Oh, Peggy Sue Got Married is. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It's a, it's a great really? film. And it's before Kathleen Turner had that weird thing happen where she started to speak with an accent. Um, <laughs> she always <laughs> Did she? Yes. She grew up in like 14 countries or something I, crazy. I military she, family. I think she was like Madonna and just adopted just... it. Um, but Back to the Future, I love it. I don't like Back to the Future 2. I like Back to the Future 3. So let, yeah. well, let's talk about what Kevin Smoker says mm-hmm. about those movies, which I think what I, I thought what was so accurate was that they... Like in all three of the films that he discusses, which is Back to the Future, Peggy Sue Got Married, and Stand by Me, that the eighties film that harkened back to the fifties, there is a jump. There's like literally an, a, a, a non recognition of the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. and I think I thought that, that was so accurate. Yeah. It's like you're right. All of these movies pretend as if the sixties and seventies right. never happened. Like and Vietnam like, wasn't there, right? And that is. That that was really insightful to me, just as a sort of cultural studies. Like, why were we so obsessed in the eighties? Why, you know? And I think from a crass marketing standpoint, just the studios were thinking, well, we want to appeal to baby boomers and kids, so this is the perfect way to just sort of avoid, you know. But I do think that there's something political going on there, whether the the writers of these films were aware of it or not, or the makers of these films were aware of it. Um, that yeah, there was this make America great nostalgia, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. let's go back and. Uh, that's a little disturbing. I, I hadn't, you know, especially for me, because Stand By Me is like one of my, it is my favorite movie of all time, to like sort of see it through that lens and be like, oh, that is complicated. That is like mm-hmm. a kind of a messy, and Stand By Me has other issues, like the fact that there's not a single female speaking role. Like, None, not one. No, there is one. The waitress. Yes, the waitress. Yeah. Who's, th- who's lighting cherry bombs out here? Right. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's for one line. That's amazing. It's uh, <laughs> so disturbing. But anyway, um, I think that, you know, I, I thought that chapter was really, really insightful, and um, I'm—I don't think I'm ever going to think about those three movies the same again. Yeah. But he also talks about Dead Poets Society uh-huh. in that section too, and I think that's another one of those movies that I don't think of as a teen movie because I think I think of it as being a Robin Williams vehicle. No, it's a teen movie. But it, I guess it is a teen movie. Yeah, it's not a very good one either. I think we've I talked seen about it in this years, before, yeah. but like, and I think that that he he quotes the Ebert review of it mm-hmm. which is totally accurate because you know they just did another um a broadway play version of it with the uh, uh, who was it jason siegel as the the professor i don't know anyway mm-hmm. uh and the reviews of that were basically the same which is like this is the safest movie about rebellion yes. ever. Right. it's like you know be a poet but then you're reading whitman yeah, like, yeah. you know 150 year old poet well, here, like, here's what roger ebert said that dead poet society he wrote was a collection of pious platitudes masquerading as a courageous stand in favor of something. Oof. 
I completely agree. The yeah. movie is set in 1959, but none of these would-be bohemians have heard of Kerouac, Ginsburg, or indeed of the beatnik movement. Right. There's which, nothing dangerous in no, the movie at all. No. But at the same time, I did like it as a kid. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think how old I was when I saw it. I guess if it came out in the 80s, I, I, was, I could have been under 10. I, I remember enjoying it. And I'm somebody who loves poetry and literature, so I'm, well, you know, it's maybe also, it helped influence me. Yeah, it's emotional, you know, and they're all emotional. 89. But I think that criticism can be pulled out to most of the movies in this book. Like, right. there are teen movies are about emotion and they're about rebellion, but they're about rebellion and emotion in the confines of your, like, white suburban rich world. Right. right. You know, like... Molly Ringwald hooking up with Judd Nelson, like, ooh. <laughs> you know, like, oh, <laughs> my <laughs> God. <laughs> you know? The, the more frightening thing is Judd Nelson was, like, 47, and Molly Ringwald was 16. Yeah, and yeah. But, you know, that's kind of, well, that's an interesting point, and this is something I thought about because, obviously, like, I was involved in a teen show mm-hmm. a decade later, and I remember being part of the creative process and feeling like, these, these old writers, you know, and they yeah. weren't that old at the time. In the 90s, like, Michael Jacobs was probably in his 40s writing Boy Meets World. But, like, it felt like they were writing a 1950s version of America for yeah. a mm-hmm. 90s audience. And it was, you know, it, there's something inherently retro about adults writing for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, so there's always going to be this level of, like, they're a, couple, they're, they're a decade or two behind whatever they're, whatever they're, they're set in. And, and that's, like, I think partly why... They kept writing movies set in the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, because it, mm-hmm. during the 80s, like, if you're thinking about your child, and now we're going to get a slew of 80s films, especially since Stranger Things did well, we're going to get a slew of teenage films set in the 80s and early 90s, because that's who's writing films right, right. now, or writing TV shows, and that's what they want, or that's what they, that's how they tap into their own childhoods, mm-hmm. um, and I think Kevin's really good at, at, at sort of pointing to the limitations of John Hughes, and, and then also recognizing that it did reach a lot of people, like, right. and, and... I think as a craftsperson, those films are really, they're, they're, they're well-written. You know, mm-hmm. like, they have great structure, the, the dialogue is witty, the characters are interesting enough to, you know, they, obviously they appeal, they're huge mainstream mm-hmm. successes. I mean, like, I know a lot of people who um, were working in the entertainment industry in the 80s, and, like, everybody wanted the next John Hughes film. Mm-hmm. Like, right. that was, like, for about 10 years in Hollywood, it, like, every screenplay that was sold had to be the next John Hughes, mm-hmm. because he was, like, the voice for right. a while there, because all of his movies didn't cost that much, made a crap ton of money, and really spoke to kids across the nation. Um, and he had huge merchandising. All right. those soundtracks were top 10 records. Right. Which is, I think, is something, too. But you know what's interesting is, Sort of the the precursor to the John Hughes in a movie that he talks about to a large extent is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Mm -hmm. which is a far more serious film than any of the John Hughes films. All the John Hughes films have um, have an element of surreal Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. They're also sentimental. Right, like yeah. Fast Times isn't sentimental. No. Like, remember, it's pretty. It's crass. Mm-hmm. Like, it's more crass. There's more nudity and right. sex, and it's also just a little edgier. There's yeah. just this level of like, I don't know if these kids are going to be all right, or uh-huh. they, you know. Whereas John Hughes, it's like it's always wrapped up in a nice, sweet right. bow, and like you just kind of feel good at the end of. Yeah, but Fast Times is is a dirty movie. It's dirty, you know, <laughs> and it takes place. You know, Spicoli. I heard I heard Kevin actually talking about Spicoli on a radio interview in my car like three weeks ago, and talking about how everyone and he talks about this in the book also how everyone in Fast Times at Ridgemont High had a job mm-hmm. except for Spicoli. Mm-hmm. Right. Spicoli is this the last person, the last Bohemian left. He just wants some tasty waves, <laughs> cool bud, and he's happier because and he's ha- and he's happy. points out yeah. in this book, right? But yeah. he's just. He, he is not driven by anything related to money yeah. or status. I hadn't thought about it because they talk about Amy Heckerling talks mm-hmm. about how Fast Times was about kids growing up too fast. Right. And like I hadn't really seen the movie through that lens. But yeah, it's true. They all yeah. have jobs. They're like this this sort of precious zone of childhood has been taken over by these adult expectations. Mm-hmm. And like that is a pressure that they're feeling. That's that's a cool way to read that yeah. movie. I had never thought of it. I no, thought it was I hadn't like either. A, oh, she's teen genius. romp, yeah. you know? She's but, a like, genius. She is obviously yeah. a genius because, I mean, I think Clueless is a masterpiece. Yes, yeah. like, I agree. Um, which I didn't recognize at the time. Like, I saw Clueless in the theater and I was like, this movie's so yeah, dumb. <laughs> right? Well, I just remember thinking, like, I thought, and I'm sure that this is true to a certain extent, you know, the whole, like, bad viewer theory? Mm-hmm. Like, there's people... I think 
I watched Clueless thinking that we were supposed to think that she's funny and heroic in uh-huh. a way. Like I was completely mm-hmm. misreading the satire of the film. But I think a lot of people like in their teens in the nineties were doing that right. and yeah. didn't realize until later, like, oh I love this movie, but I'm supposed to also be laughing at this person. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, which is something that John Hughes is not quite there. Like there's a moment in this book where I don't think it's Kevin himself, but somebody makes a reference to Lena Dunham mm. in, in reference to John Hughes mm-hmm. and how the sort of uh, limited worldview of a privileged person writing about their privileged world. And I, I, I think that that's a fair assessment in some ways, but I would say Lena Dunham's aware of it. Like, that's the whole point. Like, yeah. she, you know, the There's beginning more of satire Girls... satire in Girls than people Yeah, I mean, the very for. opening of Girls is yeah. we're cutting you off of your money, and it's like, clearly she's meant to be this anti-hero... Whereas I'm not sure, like Ferris Bueller, I think is actually kind of meant to be a hero. Like I think oh, we're supposed sure. to, we're supposed to see that his like rebellion is like sticking it to his parents in some cool or sticking it to the and, principal. And, and like, like I, you know, I saw that movie. When I was 16 years old. Loved it. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's what I'm gonna be. Yeah. Great. <laughs> All I need is a camera crew to follow me around so I can talk to the camera. Yeah. Like when I, it was like 16 or 17 years old, like my senior year in high school, I was like, oh, I can write my own doctor's notes. I can be Ferris Bueller. I can do whatever I want. You know, there's a certain joy in that. But, you know, I think this is, this is really important. It's like, it's so, there's so many things in John Hughes movies that, listen, I think they're not like so inexcusable though we should like not watch them. But like, if we constantly dig down into this nostalgia, we are purposefully blinding ourselves to certain really terrible things. I mean, Kevin does really hard work that I don't think is deserved trying to justify Long Duck Dog. <laughs> yeah, look, that's just the, racist. Well, that's just, just racist. The interview the actor who plays him, yeah. which, which is, is a great idea. Yeah. Right, and it's an interesting interview, and it is, it, it, but yeah, the comedy but, is clearly based and that's, on and that's yeah. trafficking obvious, and stereotypes. Yeah. And, There's no way around and, it. And you know, Kevin and the actor both say like, oh, and they satirize like grandmas and stuff, but no, it's no, not no, the same. No, it's not the same. And the other, the other thing that's um, really, um, you know, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, but um, Pretty that's, in Pink, is that the one with Ducky? I saw four days ago. Is that the one with Ducky? <laughs> yeah. So that whole idea that there's this like underdog nerd and he like deserves the girl and it's like fucked up that he doesn't get her is so toxic. That's just like yep. different kinds of men fighting over an idealized woman. And mm-hmm. like we have to at a certain point, you know, stop, like put the gate down. Like, yes, it is the character chooses the guy she wants to be with and that's good. You know, there can't be like a whole culture around like, oh, she should have gotten with the nerd. She should have been with him. You know, and these things are like we can't nostalgize that because that's what creates men who like feel like yep. they des- they see themselves as that kind of character and that they are like are owed something from mm-hmm. the hot, beautiful girls. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes I feel like the way Kevin's approaching John Hughes is like the, the way some, you know, Shakespeare scholars approach Shakespeare where it's like they're excusing shit. You're like, yeah, <laughs> can we just say he was anti-Semitic? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like there's some shit in here that's pretty. Or right. like Shakespeare, yeah, he created yeah. Lady Macbeth. That's great. But he also wrote Taming of the Shrew. Right. Like, let's recognize the sexism right. of his era and of his time well, and not like say overall he was a feminist. Like, exactly. Do that. So like, like at the very end, so like a perfect example. And again, I really like this book and I really like Kevin, even though I've never met him, but like there's there's a line that like completely summarizes this, and he's like, "Well, there are some things from the '80s we should leave behind, like shoulder pads and casual sexism. I'm like, those are not the same. Like, one of those ruins lives. Like, and I, I feel like that. Yeah, is... Yeah, but that's just someone writing something funny. In well, it. he was being clever. He was being clever. Yes, but but that's my point. It's yes. like so. I I I both agree, and it's also like a good example of just like sliding through something that has like truly <laughs> I, I ruined worlds people's lives you know what i mean right. so it's it's hard to be like that's bad but even that line is nostalgic you know mm-hmm. like there's still a nostalgia in that criticism so the other thing i think to talk about in this book is the one thing we actually haven't talked about which is his sense of place like this entire book is yeah. based on cities mm-hmm. and and why certain teen movies are based in Chicago yeah. or L.A. or the nebulous New England. Which I have to say, I, I, I thought it was really interesting. And mm-hmm. I think there's some really great points. But overall, it feels like a kind of... like I, I When I got to the end of the book and I realized that he had written a lot of these as essays, mm-hmm. individual essays, uh-huh. it made a lot of sense to me. Because I feel like the location setting question becomes 
the 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 linkage mm-hmm. between these different essays, I don't know if it always holds up because it's really it's a kind of you know like one of the major points he makes in the beginning is. Uh, that the 80s teen movie was a time when we moved away from the coasts mm-hmm. and started focusing. But that doesn't end up being true because like 90% of the movies he talked about take place in Los Angeles. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, so I, I felt like that was, uh, it was a really good argument to be making when you're talking about John Hughes. Like that, mm. that he was re- trying to like center childhood outside of the coast, like mm-hmm. into a suburban Midwestern. Like, yes, that makes perfect sense. Outside of that, I'm not sure the argument holds up as a frame for the entire book. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the biggest organizing principle is 80s and popular culture. Right. Like, the, you know, trying to make a, a, a theoretical argument about setting does, it didn't quite succeed for Well, me and there's, a, there's the point, like, when he's talking about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure taking place in San Dimas, which I was just driving through about 35 minutes ago. And when I was a kid, I mean, I grew up 45 minutes from San Dimas. And so whenever we would drive by San Dimas, you know, en route to Raging Waters Water Park, we'd all say, San Dimas High School Football Rules! Like, we would say that. Uh-huh. And then to find out while reading the book that it was all shot in Phoenix, mm-hmm. even... Having been to that city, I didn't even recognize that it hmm. wasn't actually San Dimas. And so, and this is a word I learned from Ryder, it's a simulacra. Simulacra. It's a simulacra of the... Or simulacrum. Simulacrum of the suburbia that they're trying to capture, right. but not even shooting in that particular place. So yeah. that San Dimas is a fictionalized... San Dimas says shot in Arizona. I don't know Arizona. if I care, though. I really don't know if I care. Yeah, me neither. Like, I don't care that they're... I mean, like, I, I, I think I care about... the I, Like, I think... I care about John Hughes creating a fictional town. Like, mm-hmm. that's interesting, because that's, like, a, a regionalist project on par right. with, like, Faulkner creating a fake county. And uh-huh. like, I think that's interesting, that he mm-hmm. linked all his movies together. That's really cool. Outside of that, the argument kind of falls apart for me. Like, I don't give a shit where a movie was actually shot. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, like, I think that there are times when the the fictional setting is worth exploring. Like, why did they choose this town? Mm-hmm. Or why did they choose the fictional setting? But, like, he spends a lot of time just on, like, that trivia that you are right. talking about. Like, this is where it was really shot. This is where it didn't exist. I don't know if I care. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I care maybe from, like, a filmmaking, like, right. historical perspective. But, like, as in terms of, like, the, the better theory arguments he's making about, like, Reagan America or the coastal elites mm-hmm. or, like, what... I would much rather just stick to those theoretically. Right. I, I feel like it was a little bit of work done maybe because of a publisher saying there's got to be a connection tissue right. between yeah. all of these essays and that became the thing. I'm not sure if that holds up as a cohesive Yeah, I don't argument. always, like if you ask me where does Stand By Me take place, where does Back to the Future take place, I would be like, I have no idea. Right. Well, see, Stand By Me spoke to me because it looked like my childhood because right. I grew up in Northern California. It took place in Oregon. But again, he also avoids sure. the fact that it actually was written, written in, in Maine. Maine. Yeah. And like Stephen Maine. King, right. So the fact yeah. that right. it was able to be transplanted to this other town means it's kind of flexible where the location is. And, and same thing with Dead Poets Society. Like, we don't ever really know where Dead Poets right. Society is. And I feel like Kevin kind of has it both ways, right? Because mm. sometimes he says location is all that matters. And then other times he says, like, it doesn't really matter here because yeah, it's a theoretical space. But like when he's talking about Los Angeles of the mid-1980s after the Olympics or before the Olympics. Oh, that was a good That was a really yeah, sort of fascinating true. examination of this city at a particular time. That's true. And it's also interesting when he's looking at movies like Repo Man um, that that period of Los Angeles in the mid-1980s is, it's like seven years before shit just blew up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with Rodney King and everything. Right. Um, and so the mid-80s in LA was, you know, brought rise to the popularization of punk rock music but it also brought us the popularization of West Coast gangster rap. Mm-hmm. All these things that were happening at the same time as these movies are being made in the shadow of the 1984 Olympics. I mean, I I would love to see Kevin write a book about the movies that came out one year after the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of looking at the socioeconomics of everything, that I was really fascinated by. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's also because I was here, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, because what about like this whole section on New York and the hip hop movies? Yeah, I haven't seen a single one of oh, them. Oh, I saw all of them. You've seen uh, them all. Yeah, okay. I, them all. I yeah. haven't seen a single one of those movies, and like some, I mean, he admits that, like one of them wasn't really a big hit, but like I, mean, I heard of Electric Boogaloo. Oh yeah, I, I saw Wild Style. I saw oh, Beat Street. God. I saw House Party. I saw Crush Groove. See, that's but, what I mean. I hadn't seen a lot. Of, I haven't seen Breaking Away. I haven't seen Valley Girl. You've never uh, seen Valley Girl? Nope. Oh, my I've God. I've never seen... Uh, and, and near the end of this book, there was, a, there was a whole section on movies that I'd never... Oh, the, I've never seen The Outsiders? Never wow. seen The Outsiders? <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, the, mostly reading So if book, I were to say to you... I've never seen War Games. If I were I've to say this seen, to you, Stay Gold Pony Boy, you wouldn't know what I'm saying? Nope. 
Oh my god. Wow. No. Oh my god. I just bought I've a signed copy of The Outsiders at uh, the book festival. Never seen Repo Man, Some Kind of Wonderful Suburbia. Oh my something something wild is a fundamental text in my life. Ugh. It's about, you know, people pretending to be other people essentially. Mm. Oh, I love that movie. Repo yeah. Man also is very important to me. I mean, it's actually absolutely true, like, where you're from. I mean, the, the location that speaks to me the most is Amity, the, the fake beach town on the Cape. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> and that is a really interesting location because it talks about it couldn't be so nice that one shark could destroy... The shark <laughs> jaws. Yeah. That, that, that so one shark could just... It had to be, like, kind of shitty. Right. And that is an example of, like, yes, that was such a good location choice and idea because if you had said like it's on nantucket or mm-hmm. p-town and people would be like what there's sharks all the time right, right uh but yeah well and i guess you know looking at the map so there's a map at the back of the book that shows where every movie takes place that he talks about and really we're talking about major um metropolitan areas the yeah. it, basically every place trump won there was no teen movie made <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's an interesting thought. I mean, it's it's true. Um, so, like, you know, from Wisconsin and Minnesota all the way to down to Texas, basically, until two bad, terrible movies, Johnny Be Good and The Legend of Billie Jean. Um, also, never seen either one of those. Johnny Be Good is a football movie starring Anthony Michael it's Hall. Horrible, right? It's dreadful. That's, okay. that's the only movie that he actually says this is a horrible movie. It's a horrible <laughs> movie. Which is fascinating. Horrible movie. And there's only one movie that takes place in Florida, and that's Caddyshack. And I don't consider Caddyshack a teen movie. I think I think that's a bit of a stretch. Um, but you know, it's it is primarily you know there's Washington and Oregon and California and um, a lot of stuff in Chicago, obviously because it's the John Hughes movies. Um, but the middle of the country is not represented at all. No, at all. That's interesting. Um, Unless for, you count Chicago as the middle of the country. Well, I mean, it is the technical middle. I, I guess I'm talking about the Great Plains. Sure. Um, which I don't really know where those are. <laughs> no, there's never been a single movie in the 80s that took place in Tennessee. However. Oh, there's got to be. the South, actually. No. Besides Caddyshack yeah. and a little bit of Texas. Hmm. Well, yeah. overall, I think that, um, I think this is a really, I think this is a really fun book. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would get a kick out of it. But I also, I do think that, like, we're going to, and I, we talked about this on the panel a little bit, we're in an interesting time where, a generation that grew up with access to film at home is now uh, writing books mm-hmm. and and being uh, critics in a way that never really happened before. Like you know, we were able to watch movies on VHS over and over again. Mm-hmm. Previous generations of children didn't grow up with mm-hmm. that that kind of. So I these are films are now becoming serious texts that we have to take seriously as, as in terms of their influence on our lives and then on the culture um, at, at large. And I think more and more of these kinds of studies are going to come out. And I'm, I love this stuff. I mean, I think it's really important to, yeah, take these texts seriously. Um, I, I, in a way, I wish that Kevin could take it even more seriously. I don't, you know, I'm sure that there's there's pressure to sell a book like this and to just, you know, appeal to your average, you know, person walking through a bookstore at the airport and be like, oh, a book about movies I like, I'll buy mm-hmm. it. Um, but I think that there's some really great serious film studies points that are made in here mm-hmm. that um, contribute to uh, the, co- the conversation, uh, the critical conversation about how we think about film in general and, and these movies in particular that I, I, I really enjoy. But you know what I wonder is if... The, these kinds of books are going to come out in 10 or 15 years when movies of today are picked apart so minutely already yeah. on the internet. Like, there was, there, was no, there was no place in 1987 to pick apart Breakfast Club frame by frame by frame. Mm-hmm. But every single movie that comes out right now online is, is completely examined... And there's a TikTok of every place, uh, every Sunday. Yeah, but most of those conversations are like fan fiction mm-hmm. or like um, fan theories. Like right. that's a different. Thing. I... That's like a different thing than what Kevin. I mean, Kevin obviously has an element of his book that's like that. But I thought like, that's kind of what I'm saying is that I would I like the more theoretical sort mm-hmm. of like broader view academic. Mm-hmm. I guess more academic yeah. approach to it, and which is not I don't think what's happening online. But well, hmm. I've no. read at least I'm not exaggerating like 20 really good pieces on Get Out, um, <laughs> which right. is and there's a reason for that, which is that it's doing something new. So people were very excited, right. and a lot of good outlets wanted to write about it. It's but, also kind of easy. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
Sure. To, of to write about, like, yes, it's, yes. It's kind of like writing about sexism and Mad Men. It's like, well, that's the point of this. Sure, but, <laughs> like, sure, but that's why this thing yes. exists. So and I that's think why Get Out exists. What this, what's different than what you're saying, Todd, and what this book does is linking movies together over time, seeing what lasted, what didn't. I mean, like, why did Back to the Future, why is that, like, so huge as compared to, like, The Outsiders or something? Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So those are the kind of studies I think we'll be looking at long term. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is a great point. Like, Outsiders is not our popular culture like Back to the Future is. Back to the Future is... I've seen Can. Back to the Future 500 times. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. You know, there's never a time that Back to the Future has been on television when I haven't stopped to watch it for no. 10 minutes. And it's actually, it's, I mean, I, it's a perfect movie. Like, and, yeah. and, and it's also, you know, I, I think, like, his points about it sort of leaping over the 60s and 70s is really interesting. Um, but he also points out, like, it's, it's, it's critical of mm-hmm. the Reagan era mm-hmm. in a very uh, astute and sly way right. and I think that um, I think that movie holds up yeah, he in, made, in all regards he makes that great point about movie. when Marty comes back downtown in that city is still crappy the bum is still the bum yeah. but his parents are more affluent and the house they live in is mm-hmm. nicer right. but the world has not fundamentally changed for those people that are on the fringes mm-hmm. which I think is you know that, that's some trenchant filmmaking by Bob Zemeckis mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so Good book. If you're a fan of 80s movies, if you're a fan of just interesting film criticism, Brat Pack America by Kevin Smokler. And I also have to give a plug for um, his first book, Practical Classics, 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School. Sounds cool. Which is essentially um, what we do every week right here. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. <laughs> Reading books is important, but I want to check that out. That's yeah, it's great. a great book. It's a great book. And Kevin's, um, Kevin's really funny. If you get to see him in person, Ryder and I had a great time with him um, on this panel at the book festival. All right, guys. Well, it was great recording with you in the same room. Yeah. I hope we came up with all new technical problems for Tucker. I got to tell you, though, I didn't realize neither of you wore pants when we did this live. Oh, Oh, yeah. That's part of it. And you're not wearing anything except the gold chain. No, and it's not around my neck. Yeah.